Jimmy Kyle, Jarvis here. I just got called back to work on the commercial squid fishing vessel that I work on after a three month hiatus surfing between Santa Cruz and Northern Baja with my girlfriend. And uh, from conception up to Bodega Bay, we absolutely got rocked in uh, this recent weather. Blowing 40 northwest with 12 to 15 footers at nine seconds. Man, kind of a scary time to be in the water. First time I've ever thrown up from being seasick. But uh, I'm grateful that uh, I have this job right now in the time of Corona. You know, it's really hard being away from my family, but um, I appreciate that uh, you know, I can uh, try to make something of uh, this time. So be safe, y'all. Hi, my name's Tim. I'm a respiratory therapist here at my local hospital in Santa Cruz, California. Just want to take a minute to let you know how serious this COVID-19 virus is. Um, as a respiratory therapist, we are heavily involved in the management of ventilators and intubation. And when one of these COVID-19 patients come in and they're very sick, we usually have an extremely hard time oxygenating them on supplemental oxygen. So usually we intubate right away. Um, our intubation process has gotten a little bit more difficult with these patients considering that each healthcare worker involved in the intubation needs to be covered head to toe in PPE, usually a negative pressure helmet, a mask, gown, shoe covers, double gloves, and sometimes that's not enough to even protect us from the virus. Once in the room, we make sure that we have no aerosolized particles of the virus um, escaping from the patient so there's no open end tubing no escalation valves no bagging the patient we try to get the patient intubated right away and hook up right up to the vent um, managing these patients on the vent is a little bit more difficult due to their severe viral pneumonia and these patients stay on the ventilator for much longer than a regular patient that we would set up on a ventilator um, hopefully we pray that these the results come back good and the patient can come off the vent but as you guys know, throughout the country, it has led to a lot of death. So all I'm saying is be safe out there. Keep your social distancing. Stay home. Wash your hands. And have a good day. Thanks. Thank you, Jarvis. And thank you to Tim for sending those voice memos in. Jarvis, that seasickness story does not sound fun. And uh, to Tim, thank you very much for the work that you're doing right now, man. We all really appreciate it. This is a re-uploaded episode, the first of its kind. I came out with the original podcast about a year and a half ago on my first Axis deer hunt, and I am re-releasing it for a few reasons. The first being that this is one of my favorite all-time podcasts, and if you haven't listened to it, I think that you'll enjoy it. The second being that I was supposed to be on a Axis deer hunt in Maui with Jake right now. Plans changed, but coronavirus can't stop me from re-uploading this episode, so I'm going to do it. The third being that I think that Jake's work is a really good example of the kind of work that we need more now than ever. Last week, Jake and his team harvested 131 axis deer over 7,500 pounds of meat, and donated it to community food groups in need. Maui Nui Venison is an example of the kind of entrepreneurship that we need to see more of in this world. They are addressing a specific problem for a specific community, 
and they are moving the needle. So um, change does not happen with a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, it does happen community by community, um, taking on one problem at a time and a problem that you can do something about. One of my favorite sayings is tend to the part of the garden that you can touch. So I hope that this episode brings about ideas and insights for you, um, no matter what kind of work you're doing, no matter where you are. If you enjoy this episode, um, and if you enjoy this podcast and you like hearing from me, you might want to check out my newsletter. I send out short stories that I write, and I post it on my blog, kyle.surf. You can click the link below this episode to sign up for it, um, and it's just it's all free. It's directly out there to you, um, and you'll ensure that you get it if you sign up for my newsletter. Thank you to Noland. Thank you to Casey, and thank you to James for donating to this podcast on Patreon last week. I rely on listeners like you to keep this show going. Patreon is one of the main ways that I make my living, and every little bit helps. That said, if you're in a financial position where five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month is a really um, big decision for you to make, I'm not talking to you. Keep your money. Um, Don't worry about it. Just keep listening to the show share it with friends, give it a rating on iTunes. There's plenty of ways to support it that don't involve um, your credit card. But if you do have a few extra bucks laying around and you enjoy the content that I put out, please consider donating. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to do that. Final thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals has been with us since the beginning. They sponsor every episode of this podcast. They're great. They make potent CBD products that I use every single day. And if you would like to get it at a discount, head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, and get 10% off your order. That's it for now. Hope you all have a great day. Stay inside. And please welcome back to the show my friend, Jake Muse. This is a great parenting fail. Okay. okay. So we're in the Vancouver airport. We're coming back from my brother's wedding. Like already, we do pretty good, but we're, you know, any parent is stressed out when, when you've got like small kids with you and you take them up planes. So the son is like three, I think. And there's like a playground in the middle of the airport. And we're like, oh, super cool. And he's so excited. Like my son is so fanatical that he forgets about anything he's supposed to be doing, including like his general bodily responsibilities. He comes whipping down this slide and we see this massive skid mark coming down, with <laughs> coming down with him. And we were like, and had already checked all our bags and we're like, what? Like, this is like a regular kid thing. Like, and he's out of diapers. Like this shouldn't be happening. No. And I'm just like, no. And like general frustration, but I'm like, it's doodle. I can yeah. deal with that. This four-year-old, cutest little Indian kid you've ever seen. And his dad is standing behind the slide so he can't see. And he gets to the top of the slide. And this super curious look on his face. Like, he's looking down. 
and he's like trying to figure out like what's going on. His intuition is telling him no. And there was a solid enough pause that it should have been me stepping forward saying, stop. My son just shit all over the slide. Don't do it. And it wasn't me stepping forward. It was Paliku, let's go. <laughs> and we, uh, like, we bolted. <laughs> and I could just, like, I can hear the kid going down the slide. And, and the, <laughs> yeah. And I, was, I just looked at Paliku. I'm like, let's get out of here. Man. <laughs> like, run. This is not a moment. Oh, oh my God. That is so funny. Yeah. yeah. Poor parenting. Everybody poops. Everybody poops. Everybody guy. poops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know, deal, being out in the, it, it probably used to not be so gross, and then until modernity, <laughs> until you know, like now it's like poops yeah. embarrassing. Yeah. Your sex life is embarrassing. Yeah, you absolutely. don't talk about death. Like all of these, there there are a few subjects that we still deem as as taboo subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to uh, a guy named Hunter Motts. He's a really smart guy who've had on my show. And, and um, we were talking about the issues that will be um, the conversations of tomorrow. He's hmm. like, what are those issues going to be? And he said, look at the issues that are the taboos of today. Interesting. Like, what is it that you can't talk about today that will then... Become Sooner or later, yeah, will become the issues of tomorrow. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like you couldn't talk about being gay a generation ago. Yeah, and right? now it's now it's out in the open. Yeah, yeah, and I would say that you know hunting is definitely taking this large circle around. Where now, uh, thanks to some some people who have really big voices and, mm-hmm. and are thoughtful, are um, I think changing the conversation very quickly. Yeah, and they're inviting significantly more people into that conversation excuse me i mean it used to be so restricted to those folks on the cover of the magazine that would connect with i mean you've heard it a million times that grip and grin somebody smiling with antlers in their in their hands and that's what it was restricted to and you would open up those pages and you'd get you know decent portions of that story but it never told the whole story it never told like the struggle or misery or the effort that goes into it. And it never talked about the food. And I think more people are connecting now with how important hunting could be as a food resource. Um, certainly. And, and again, I only know we were talking about this earlier. I only know the po- the people that I take out like first time hunters and that always get them to come out again is is if they're successful in harvesting their own meat because then they can constantly remember that experience each time they serve it to their kids or they share it with a friend or they're eating it for lunch at work. Like they're constantly coming back to that experience. What creates a complete experience. Yeah. Um, As you know, I'm still uh, relatively new to it and I have found that... um, you know, I, I did a, a big group dinner at my house uh, this this last summer and, and um, served a boar that I had harvested earlier. From here? From, uh, it was from the Big Island. Oh, cool. And I remember having the, the distinct feeling that there was something about the, the diffusion of responsibility hmm. of there was this, this act and, and I was now sharing it with the community and it felt complete. Yeah. It was really strange to... to 
kind of understand it intellectually, but feel it that like yeah. the hunt wasn't done until that meat was shared. Exactly. And it's, it's me and my wife were just throwing this idea around is we wanted to have a debt free dinner. So the idea was when I harvest an animal, it's debt free. Like I haven't taken anything from, <clears throat> I haven't expended mass amounts of gas to get that. That was wild. It was an invasive species that needed to be harvested. That meat was debt free. And we said, what else would we have to do for that to happen? Cause we've got chickens and we've got a couple pigs running around the yard and we we're trying, we we're having, it ended up being such an entertaining conversation to see like, what would an entire debt free dinner feel like? And even if we could only pull that off, we don't have to go to the extreme of like doing that every night. But even if we could pull that off once a year and that be the topic of conversation, this amazing debt-free dinner, um, we think that would be an amazing way to start a conversation with people to say like where your food is coming from and what the effect of that food is. Um, yeah, and I think that it can also, if you choose to look at it um, not as a burden, but as uh, something that enriches your life. Yeah. Um, accountability uh, can enrich your life. Yeah. Um, somebody asked recently if I was going to teach my son, who's now <clears throat> nine, to, to bow hunt. And I said, absolutely. And I said, why? I said, because it's the best form of accountability I can think of. And I, you know, I don't wish this on anybody. And, and maybe I wish this on my son because I'm responsible for him becoming a good human. I hope he gets it wrong. Because there's nothing that hurts more than putting in the amount of practice required to shoot an animal properly with a bow at the appropriate range and, and to get in there and then screw it all up, injure that animal and then have to live with that till the next moment you have that opportunity again, that level of accountability for a 12 or 13 year old or when he's old enough or proficient enough to do that, I would hope he has those failures because he'll learn more from that failure and the pain that comes with that failure than he'll ever get out of missing the winning three pointer at a basketball game. Yeah. Like there's so much more attached to it. I think about that a lot. I think about how attached as a society we are to sunlight and smiles. And as I said, not talking about the dark stuff, you don't yep. talk about death, yep. you don't talk about divorce. No. Um, but when you don't allow yourself to feel the sorrow, then it doesn't allow you to feel the joy as completely. Absolutely. And when you're constantly pretending that everything is awesome, yep. you start to bury the real emotions and you bury that accountability. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and as a result, all of a sudden you start living this lie that's really painful because psychologically you're conflicted. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, and you can feel it. I mean, you can really see it and feel it when yeah. someone is living in accordance with accountability and when they're not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's the level of, on top of that accountability, the level of effort that goes into it. If we think of like hunting that we've done for, you know, as humans for thousands and thousands of years, as often as I've done it, 
I, I've come to the conclusion, and I could be completely wrong, but I've come to the conclusion that we are as not addicted, but we enjoy the misery and effort of it as much as the the kill, not the kill itself, but the, the food. Because if we didn't, as a species, if we didn't enjoy going out there and failing and say that was still awesome, then we would have never kept doing it even as a function of food. So you can ask, I've been on a whole bunch of hunts that were really hard, like six or seven day backpack hunts, complete, like, you know, for the regular person would be a complete failure. You don't come out with anything. And like it rained, there was four or five days we couldn't see anything. And you ask that person a year from now, hey, remember that hunt? Like that was the best hunt ever. And for anybody else, like looking from the outside in, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Like you didn't shoot anything. And it was miserable. Like you almost got like hypothermia. It's, it's all of those trials and misery. Have you always had that uh, mindset growing up in Alberta? It seemed like rough conditions, but it was that something that was drilled into you or do you think that that was inherent? Um, I think (laughs) to kind of answer your question in a roundabout way, I've realized living in Hawaii, um, it takes significantly less energy to live here. So, so somebody lives in Northern Canada is by default, a very hardy person, like the level of energy required just to live there is extraordinary from digging ditches to cutting wood to doing all of those things. And I think that constant level of misery and then working through it and we gotta do some jumping jacks even before we have sex to warm up (laughs) come on babe let's get to it yeah like it's that that lifestyle when when your basic necessities are taken care of living in an incredible place like hawaii it affords you all of this additional energy to to expend on other things so i i think that was definitely ingrained in in how I grew up, but, but from a natural standpoint, like it was just a constant part of every day. Like I remember dreading, like I remember loving winter. I remember dreading spring because we had, they called them like one pound mosquitoes. Like you would go outside in Northern Canada during spring. And it was like this constant battle with like bird sized mosquitoes just to get to school. Like you'd get yourself like psyched, get yourself like psyched up before leaving the house. Like, yeah, I'm going to get on my bike. I'm going to get to school in record time. Not one of them is going to touch me. Like you're losing liters of blood. Like, <laughs> so remind me of like those uh, critters in Jumanji or something. Yeah. And I'm looking at like any opportunity. Again, uh, a poor parenting comment, but any opportunity to infuse a little misery in my kid's life, like I, I'm down. Like I think they'll learn more from that than than anything else. Well, it's all about your orientation to it. Exactly. There's a guy named Josh Waitskin who's an author. He wrote a book called The Art of Learning, mm. and uh, he has a kid who he says um, he'll take cold showers with. It's turning him into a little oh, Jedi. That's brutal. But he says um, he's orienting his kid towards being cold as good because really being cold is only good or bad because you make it good or bad. Hmm. It's, it's just a sensation. Absolutely. And it, uh, requires concentration to move through that. Um, but he'll teach his kid to be like, yeah, it's so good and cold. 
And he says that he and his child haven't missed one storm yet. Whenever it rains, they'll go outside and they'll puddle jump. But just that reorientation to yeah. what other people think is miserable can, um, it can reduce so much suffering in one's life. Yeah. Cause the, you know, most of the suffering is up here in the mind. It's not actually what's happening to you physically. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope, I mean, as, as a parent, you hope you can make those great decisions for your kid and, and it gets harder and harder to do so because I think you're supposed to baby them and pamper them. And, um, I remember as a kid getting a slingshot at like seven and we lived up in Northern Alberta and the town was called like home of the Grizzlies. And like my parents would just let me roam around the woods in our backyard by ourselves. And if I turned around and let my seven year old go with a slingshot in Northern Canada, I'd, I'd, I'd probably go to jail. Like it's, um, I mean, things are changing and, and right. Well, there's a lot of science that's coming out now about, uh, letting about a, the, the importance of letting your kids play yeah, and b the importance of letting your kids figure out conflict on their own. Yeah. Like if you see two kids, uh, starting a conflict to not intervene immediately, yeah. let them figure it out. Yeah. So they don't always look to authority, look to the adult because those kinds of mindsets carry through even to adult. Absolutely. You know, it's people who, who teach themselves how to figure shit out and people who don't. I was, uh, I was listening to Rogan the other day and I can't remember what guest he had on board, but there, do you remember what the conversation they had about throwing rocks? Mm, I don't think so. So this guy, um, he was talking about the evolution of human beings coming from the, the transition from ape to, to homo sapien. Homo sapien. And they said, one of the things that they believed was when we made the turn, was because we could throw rocks. So he said that as a single person with a lion coming straight at you, you could throw a single rock and you'd, you'd still get eaten. But r- throwing rocks is where our group dynamic started to form because if 10 of us threw rocks at a lion, there was a good chance we were going to beat that lion off. And he was talking about from a social standpoint, throwing rocks was like the basic, like the beginning of human, yeah. human existence. And... I only bring it up because we were at the beach the other day and we usually, when my kids throw rocks on the beach, I'm like, stop throwing rocks at the beach. And they were throwing rocks and my wife, I could see my wife getting ready to say, don't throw rocks. I was like, no, let them throw rocks. (laughs) Yeah. They're supposed to be throwing rocks. Like this is what they do. Right. Well, not only them throwing rocks, but in groups. Yeah. Because that is what is beyond just us throwing rocks, which has allowed us to evolve. It's our social skills that have allowed us to evolve. And, um, you look at that now I'm going back to hunting Yeah, in hunting groups. Like, um, there's a a book called uh, born to run, Mm -hmm. um, that makes that an argument as well. That one of the reasons homo sapiens evolved was because of our ability to run. And even before we made weapons, um, we would do something called endurance running because we have sweat glands. Um, you know, early people on the African Sahara would run in groups and they would, um, they would separate one gazelle and they would out, they would run a gazelle to death because after a few hours it would just fall over and die of organ failure because yeah. it couldn't sweat. Yeah. Crazy shit. That's incredible, man. We've come, we've come a long way from them, but I think a lot of that, that basic human nature is still in there. I mean, we were talking earlier today about some like new guys that we know and, and doesn't matter who they are or how successful they are. You, 
you just get them on the topic of hunting after they've done it for a little while and, and they're so excited like there's such a base need to get out there and have a level of observation that requires them to be successful because if they're out there and they're not paying attention it's not going to happen like they have to they're forced to be in tune with their environment to get close enough to even think about getting an arrow off what i was thinking about is that a lot of what you're doing um is hunting in groups I would imagine that you're in a somewhat meditative state mm. as you're doing that yeah. because you're noticing all these little idiosyncrasies about the environment yeah. and, and you really are forced to tune in to the present moment. You know, what's really cool is, is when I, when I started hunting and I remember like doing it with my dad and, and all the things that go into it. But when I really started hunting by myself, I remember making conscious decisions like put my foot here go around this tree like you're making strategic decisions and the more and more you do it those decisions become like completely instinctual and you're thinking like big level decisions like I'm going to move to this terrain over here and it's it's amazing just sheer time in the field you get so good at those little decisions and you don't even notice them because they just become instinctual. And I think those are what leads to success. Right. Because stepping the other way or going around the other tree or picking the wrong way to go on that way, that all leads to an animal going the wrong way. Um, And I think that only happens when you're in the field, I think most often by yourself because you're forced to make those decisions for yourself and you remember them much more. And... All of that stuff has led to, I mean, me being a, a better hunter, but I, I think all of those things lead to you being a better father and business person and all of the things that go along with it. Right. And, and we... We're, sorry, go for it. No, I was going to say we... I think if I wouldn't have had that connection as a hunter, we would have created the business that we're doing completely different. Mm. Like we, didn't, we didn't approach our business at Maui Nui as we wanted to be in commercial deer harvesting. We approached it as we're hunters and there's, there's an issue that we need to solve and having that base as a hunter, I think helps solve a lot of the problems and out on the back end, we now realize how interesting those solutions were, but I don't think we'd ever got there if we came at it from, I'm a rancher that has too many deer and then we need to solve this problem. We came at it as hunters and with a certain, with a level of respect for that animal and, and decisions that you had to make because you had that level of respect. Right, yeah. and also a level of knowledge about the environment. Exactly. You talk to marine biologists and some of their greatest assets are fishermen. Mm-hmm. They go to some of these far out places where fish populations are depleted and the, the way that they get data is by talking to the local fishermen. It's amazing. By talking to, to them about how far they need to go out as opposed to how far their father needed to go out to get the same size fish. And it's all because you, you get, you're a group that's invested. You have incentives to learn about the environment and therefore you are going to have more knowledge of it and makes you more a more valuable asset Mm -hmm. so were you already a proficient uh hunter uh when you started started hunting axis deer um i I don't think i can (laughs) i don't think i can say yes to that right you've learned Um, a lot since then i've learned a lot and if you probably asked me 20 years from now I'd, i'd probably say you know, 20 years ago, are you good? And I'd say, no, I mean, you just, 
the more time you have in the field, you're just constantly learning more about the animal and their environment and their impact on that environment and how that changes. But we started, I think the, I think I was always strongly connected to it because we grew up eating animals. So we had, like my dad shot a moose every year until I was like 13 or 14 and we ate moose like every day, like sausage, steak, stew, but it was always such an, like an important part of our life. My mom was telling me a story the other day of growing up on, she would shoot, like dad would shoot pheasants and she'd grind all of that up and like pheasants was baby food. Like that was always a part of what we did. When I came to college here in Hawaii and had the first, like when I first started hunting axis deer with, with my family on Molokai, it was because I was starving in college and we couldn't get like after two years of the cafeteria, like that wore off pretty quickly as, as an athlete. And I really started to notice that when I came home from Molokai with two coolers full for the next three months, I was recovering better. I was training better. I had more energy and it didn't even matter that we were topping it off with so much teriyaki sauce and sugar and everything else. Just having a base protein that was significantly better than whatever we were getting in the cafeteria. That's when I really started to notice because up to that point it was just a food source and when it, and I really started to notice the effect it had on me as an athlete as a volleyball player as a volleyball player. So what <laughs> level did you get to as a volleyball player? So I played Division one um, with the University of Hawaii and I played for our youth or junior Olympic team um, in Canada and then I played professional volleyball in Europe for a couple of years which was and, and by no means was I, I one of the best, but I think a little bit of that mental fortitude got me to some of those places. But it was an amazing way to see Europe because I got to play in the Netherlands and then you would play a team in Spain and Greece and go all over the place. I got to go in the mall. I was in the Maldives for a three-month season. Whoa. I was in Indo for a four-month season. And Indo and Maldives were awesome because... I was then the same height as everybody else <laughs> in the Netherlands. Like my teammates were all like six eleven, and I'm six feet tall. So it was an incredible way to see the world and use that tool. And I don't know. I just, re- I think I could have kept playing, but there was like a diminishing returns to it. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm still playing. And like, what is it adding to me? And then in the middle of me trying to figure that out, I met, I met my wife one summer on Molokai and so your family lives out on Molokai? Yeah, so I have Hanai family. So um, Hanai in Hawaiian is, is like adoption. So when I came to the University of Hawaii, um, they accidentally put me in a dorm room with all of the Hawaiian and Polynesian kids that didn't have good enough grades to get in. So they were pushing through the summer to try and get in. And I remember walking in the first day and them looking at me and be like, you're in the wrong place, bro. And I was like, Johnson Hall B? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, room 101? They're like, oh, bro, we're going to eat you. And I was just like, oh. And like, Buta, who was is still a buddy of mine, he was 6'8", 350. Like, I'd never seen a human that big before. <laughs> yeah, so like, coming from northern Canada, I was just like, this doesn't... And it's like, <laughs> first day off the plane, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. They're definitely going to eat me. And... <laughs> Hawaiian style like literally six hours later they were all best friends and they were taking care of me and they were the first thing they did was um I think we were getting ready to go to the beach and 
and I, I didn't have a bare board shorts yet. So the old school elastics with like the liner and everything. And they're just like, we're not taking you to Sandy's with that thing. So they like took me to Locomotion, got me a pair of board shorts. Like they must have really loved me. Right. Or else they had to just let me fry on the beach. What do you think that was? That's not a common story for um, a white boy to come into Hawaii and have have that kind of acceptance. I, I don't know. Like it's interesting. They they the first thing they asked, where are you from? And they got my story and and I don't know if it was enough or they just thought maybe they score some volleyball chicks because I was going to be around them <laughs> yeah. or I have no idea but people from Molokai are special people they've learned how to they still live off the land they still have a subsistent lifestyle there's there's no homeless or hungry people on that island like there's an incredible community there and I think that spills over to anybody that they're dealing with if you're good people so I was then on the east coast of Canada, so I, like going home was not only too it was too expensive but too far. So every holiday and every break, I just that became family. Like we started going over there, and and we connected really quickly because we, you know, we we I had hunted before and a lot of hunting, and and they do that. I mean, as as a subsistence um, way of life, way of life, right. yeah. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just smiling, yeah, thinking that, about it. Like that's it, cool, man. Yeah, it was just a, it's. I, I, I imagine how my life would have been different if I had been put in the right dorm. Right. Um, I certainly wouldn't have. Isn't been it there. crazy yeah. how those little decisions, if you look back yeah. on your life, or those little mishaps, or like, yeah. how is it that I met that person at that exact yeah. moment that and, this happened? And the folks on that island, like they recognized that they had too many deer, and they recognized the impact that had on you know, our reefs through erosion and our water and, and, and they, they had to, they made their peace with it because they didn't have any way to control it. But I would guess, I would guess they shoot five to 10,000 deer on that Island a year, just the community alone. And the level of respect they have for that animal helped to form all of the decisions I've made in terms of how we interact with this animal. And if that, that could have been completely different if that was a different family or a different place that right. I learned those things from. Tell me a little bit about the axis deer. Oh, where do you want to start? So, um, first thing I heard about is that it's the tastiest deer on planet earth. So, so it's definitely the tastiest deer on planet earth. And that's a function of two things. One, they're a tropical deer species. There's only, I believe there's only two tropical deer species. So they didn't, in the process of evolving, they didn't develop all these large migratory habits and they're not having to deal with winters and store intramuscular fat. So they have less than 1% intramuscular fat. So like they're almost technically fat free, but that intramuscular fat when they're browsing is where you'll get a lot of that flavor stored. So they don't pick up a lot of that flavor. Second thing is they eat almost 80, at least in the studies we've done, we've done satellite telemetry video callers. So we stick a collar of them and we get 48 hours of footage incrementally of exactly what they eat. And over the several times that we've done it, they eat almost 80% grass. So they're picking up less of those browsing flavors if they were like eating bark or any of those other things that, that sometimes get that stronger gamey flavor. Um, there's areas, speaking of flavor, there's areas on Molokai when like the kiave beans, the mesquite beans go off. They're sweet. 
and you can taste it in the deer because that's all they'll eat for months at a time. Or there's another area on Molokai that has um, Vivi. Um, what is the? It's like a, a strawberry guava. And that's all they eat for two months is strawberry guava. And like the deer almost tastes like it's been soaked in teriyaki. Wow. And um, that lends to like a conversation about their behavior. They are, and I think as a function of skipping like hard seasons and, and having to survive. And they, they obviously evolve with the Bengal tiger as their predator. Um, they're extraordinary opportunistic. So they'll go from, we've seen a doe go from an, an average home range of like two miles. So she's moving in a two mile radius, eating, collecting water, doing whatever else down to 10 acres for whatever reason, and that could be a function of food or stress, and she'll be in that 10-acre area for months. And then when she feels comfortable again, she'll go out, and and, and other deer don't do that. Um, the big thing with axis deer, and probably the biggest biological thing to understand, is they can breed year-round. So whereas elk or mule deer... They have these really pronounced rut periods where they're, they're like, they're rounding up all of their females and they're getting everything ready. That's because they're producing enough testosterone. Their sperm is viable. That's time for them to breed. Axis deer, even when they drop their antlers, how they drop their antlers every year. How do they drop them? So every year they, it's called casting. So they'll, they'll grow an entire antler, which is like one of the, amazing things in the natural world yeah. they grow this massive of the world. bone i'm seeing a very uh yeah an elk antler there oh, that's an elk antler. yeah so they'll grow this massive bone in the span of three months and then they cast it off and then they regrow an entire new one every single year and typically what happens is when they cast that antler testosterone levels drop way down and their sperm isn't viable in something like an elk or a mule deer axis deer their sperm is viable year round so they're ready to rock. So they're ready to rock year round. So you throw a deer that can breed year round in an environment that has no predators and year round temperate climates and somewhat unlimited feed, which is Hawaii. And you've got like an absolute booming population at the levels of like 30 to 31% a year is what you look at turnover. And typical deer, you'd see like maybe 12 to 14%. Wow. So as a, like you couldn't have, they go big, they're like a Mormon family. So it's like that double. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of Mormons in Hawaii. A lot of Mormons. (laughs) It's, it's the double edged sword where it's like hands down the tastiest animal around, but it's also the worst deer you could have thrown in the state of Hawaii as an invasive species and as an ag pest. A good example is there's blacktail. Not a lot of people know there's blacktail on Kauai. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, they were introduced to Kauai about the same time Axis deer were introduced to Maui. You can barely find a blacktail on Kauai. Like you're just starting to see them now. And opposite of that, there's 50,000 Axis deer on Maui. And they'll probably be based on like our population studies and where we look at like 
habitable areas for them. There'll probably be 210,000 deer on Maui by the time they're done growing. Wild, man. Which is, I mean, on Molokai, if you want to grow anything, you put up a 10-foot fence at the cost of $35 a foot. So it's an ag issue. Again, that's the subject of invasive species. I mean, and it makes it even worse when they taste so damn good, is how do you balance that? How do you get an acceptable impact for where you're working and what land you're in? And for our critical watersheds in some of those areas, that's zero. Like those animals can't be in there. Right. Our forested and and our forested areas and our plants evolve not to have herbivores around. Like they, they don't have any defenses and we're, we're stuck in the middle of the ocean. Like we saw what happened to Puerto Rico this year with their hurricanes and stuff. And, um, was that last year? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a surfer and I was introduced to hunting through coral reefs. That was the first That's so interesting. part of, of, that was the first thread for me. It wasn't that like, oh, I want to go out and hunt. This seems like a really cool thing. It was that I had a friend who's an oceanographer who studies coral reefs, and he was telling me that one of the biggest impacts on Hawaii's coral reefs are the ungulate population. So this is pig, goat, deer. And I was like, that's crazy. How? Yeah. And he says, well, it's through the soil erosion. They get into these sensitive watersheds and they're basically like rototillers with hooves and they dig up all the dirt. And then when the next rain comes, the, the, the mud goes out over the coral reefs and suspends over the coral. Coral's an animal. It needs oligotrophic conditions to survive. That's a big word for saying clear water. Yep. And it increases the bleaching activity. Mm-hmm. So that, that was like, it, it's, strange to me that, I mean, and, and that really is, it seems like the premise of why invasive ungulates need to be managed is because of the soil erosion. Mm. Um, and that's the point that you try and get across to people a lot, but it's interesting that for me, I came through this conversation through a complete back door That's so interesting. and then became it. And then I went out and I, I, uh, got to go on a hunt with Justin Lee and I saw how freaking cool it is to get out there yep. into the mountains being a beach kid, like getting to get out into a new environment was yep. really special for me. Um, but, uh, it seems like that is the point that you're trying to hit home for a lot of people. Is yeah. that like, no, it's, if you don't do anything, this whole hillside is going to be destroyed. And one of the only ways that I think you can get that point across is through, those photos of fence lines where you see a 10 foot fence and on one side there's this thriving forest and on the other it looks like a big rototiller came through and and you know just as and and the reefs are so important but just as important as that is what then replaces those plants that were supposed to be there and evolved to be there in their watershed is an invasive plant that doesn't capture most of our watersheds capture rain through or capture their water through fog drip. And so these plants have evolved to capture this fog and then move that down into our aquifers. And you're getting invasive plants that are coming in that that water is doubling in running off and running off into the soil. And we're not, we're capturing some of the statistics I've read are just startling how little water we capture versus our native forests. Right. And again, in, in a rock in the middle of the ocean, like our water is our most important thing. A hurricane hits and the first thing people do is run to the store to buy a bottled water. Like our, our aquifers are probably one of our most important assets here in Hawaii. And those only happen through 
the right native forest being in place, and that doesn't happen if if there's too many ungulates. So to break that down one step further, is that the same premise as when it rains really hard after a long dry spell, the water can't soak into the soil as easily, whereas if you have these native plants that can um, get fog to soak in, it allows then when heavy rains to come in to to also soak in rather than just run off and create these big yeah. uh, mud plumes. You nailed it. Okay. And, and one of the, in some of the lower lying areas where there isn't, there's no longer native forest and it's been replaced by invasive tree stands and, and, and the animals will come in and they'll eat everything on the bottom and they'll hard pack all of that soil. And what benefit they could have as cloven hooved animals where they're they're imprinting that soil and they're either you know dropping seeds in or something else it's so hard packed on Molokai this summer we were seeing massive piles of deer scat deer shit so huge piles of deer shit that were running off into the ocean and piling up on the beaches and those if there is a benefit, and there definitely is, if there's a benefit to that animal, it's all of the nutrients stored in that scat that should be going into the soil if there's an appropriate density and going back into providing nutrients. But there's so many animals that there's no vegetation. So even what little benefit they could provide is now running off into the ocean. Wow. It's probably creating more uh, algal blooms for the coral reefs as well, right? Because there's so much nutrients. I mean, we, we went to the beach and there's just like, literally shit all over the beach yeah we couldn't believe it like that's uh, so we did two two stories just to break this the effect that shit has on coral reefs down um i did two stories one was on the impact that that pigs have on coral and the other was on the impact that cesspools have on coral. um and we went to this community on the big island called puaco that's built at water level and Hawaii they, they just passed a law that new, that new dwellings now need to have septic tanks and for people who just to break that down when you take a shit it goes into a septic tank all the solids are at the bottom and then slowly the water will rise and it'll kind of spill out but it won't be this basically condensed shit whereas a cesspool is just a hole in the ground mm-hmm. that all the poop goes into and in a place like Puaco ironically named uh, at water level um, at the high tide line the shit would just go straight out into the coral yep. um, and that amount of, of nutrients the shit would create um, would create these algal blooms on the coral reefs which would suffocate it yeah. Um and so that that was another big issue, and I'm, I'm happy that Hawaii just passed the law to um, have new dwellings now have septic tanks in it. But coral, man, just we need it. We need it. Coral's got coral's got to step its game up, though. Poop's taking it down. Coral <laughs> reefs are taking it down. You, I take an interim flight like almost every week, and the the west side of Molokai being probably one of the places that has the most deer. Um, the there's just scores and scores of red like all you see is red dirt on the entire island and all you see is red dirt all over the reefs and it's just and you'll look in the you'll look across the channel at west maui who if you look at like historical rain data for like the last two months and i've done this several times we'll get the exact same amount of rain and they're green grass and there's no deer that have established themselves on the west side of Maui yet um like 
there's probably 20,000 deer on the west side of Molokai. And anything that pops up, it just grows so quickly that nothing can establish itself. Wow. And then everything runs off. Same story. So I've heard the argument from hunters that, you know, without hunters, Hawaii would be completely different because they manage ungulate populations. But it seems like at the rate ungulates and specifically specifically axis deer populations are growing, you need something more substantial than just one hunter taking one or two animals. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, there's... There's two sides to that story. One, I don't think you're right. I think the level of population growth, the hunters would never be able to will be able to match that. But two, the hunters don't have access to all of the areas necessary to manage that those population levels. The public hunting areas on our three islands that we have an access deer issue, we could have a thousand hunters in there every day and it's not going to have an impact on the total population on the islands because most of them are on our large ranches or in areas that are privately owned and the liability associated with letting just anybody run on your property with a gun i mean it's just it's just not going to happen so hunters play a really important role in the areas that they can but it's you're right it's not enough for a number of reasons right so what do you do so we I think as hunters, we, we recognize that and we started a, for lack of a better term, an ungulate management company. We basically deal with any feral animal and our job is to provide a service that allows for an acceptable impact for that, for that area that we're working in. So like we said, for some of our watershed areas, that's zero. That's an area that's going to be fenced off and all those animals are going to come out. For some of our large ranches, those are areas like we're going to head up this week that have like tons of value in recreational hunting. These are areas that branches are trying to move forward with regenerative ag practices and rotate their cattle and do anything, and they cannot compete with the level of deer that are on their property. So, Because they eat the grass? Because they, they eat primarily grass. So for every... For every six deer, it, e- it equals to one cow in the amount of dry feed that they eat. So if a guy has 10,000 deer on his property and he's essentially got an extra 600 head of cattle running around, if I got that math right, he's only got 600 head of cattle. So he's dealing with an entire like other group of, of essentially cows that he's trying to compete with. And as they create these rotational grazing programs, deer move wherever they want, whenever they want. And they're consuming all of this grass. And it's so frustrating for the ranchers because they're breaking fences and they're consuming all of the dry feed and they're consuming the best dry feed because they can go wherever they want. Um, so our job is to get population levels down to something that works for everybody it's not in most cases eradication because those animals have a lot of value for hunting these animals now have a lot of food value because we're able to use them for usda human consumption um but it's finding an acceptable level that that works for each of the landowners that we that we work with. You know, it's interesting. Is uh, I was thinking about this earlier. You are one of the few um, commercial wild animal, uh, I, I guess, companies. Like besides fishermen, I was thinking like fish yeah. is really the last um, animal that is consumed 
from the wild. Mm -hmm. Most other animals now are consumed through industrial agriculture. Yep. In the, in the twenties and thirties, I believe, um, they passed laws to, to stop commercial harvesting of wild game because it was doing, they were doing so unchecked and they were decimating populations. Um, and that's probably the best thing that ever happened for elk and whitetail and, and all of the, the species on the... Because they the could continent. have gone extinct. Exactly. Um, and they had no way of knowing how many they were harvesting. But for Hawaii, the, these animals here are invasive species. And so they're not a native species and they're not afforded those protections. And for that very reason, our state government also doesn't take any steps to manage them. So... If our state doesn't play a role in managing them and our hunters can't manage them, we just recognize that there was a very real gap that if somebody didn't at least try something, you get to the point where it's all or nothing. And unfortunately, in Hawaii in the past, all or nothing is aerial shooting and just leaving them all to waste because you can't, you can't find a solution for that animal. Um, so it took, I mean, we've been at this for like 10 years, um, We've made lots of mistakes along the way trying to figure out what the best way to do it. Over the last four years, we've been, we've been able to integrate USDA harvesting. So that's wild harvesting, just, just like our fishermen. And we had to basically meet all of the criteria that you would for like a regular brick and mortar facility in the middle of the bushes <laughs> so that means being mobile so we have a mobile slaughter facility that means meeting all of the humane handling rules which for lack of a better term is you know you need to be able to kill them immediately they can't be under any stress so we had to develop really interesting techniques to do that and as hunters and we had a choice in the beginning as hunters we didn't want to take the approach of rounding them up by the hundreds getting them in big pens and just shooting them, that for sure would have been the most efficient and cost-effective means to do it. But I think as hunters, we recognize the value that comes to meeting them on their own terms and harvesting them truly in the wild. And so we develop a bunch of ways to do that at night, utilizing a, a type of night vision, forward-looking infrared. And when we're now able to complete all of those inspections at night, that animal is truly wild until the second it's harvested. We don't pen it. We don't bait it. And then we're able to take that animal to a mobile facility that's close by. We haul it all over the place. And well, not only from an ethics standpoint, from all, but also from a taste standpoint. Oh, absolutely. So that's, we talked about this earlier. So stress in an animal can completely change not only taste, but texture. So we all have, we store glycogen, we store sugar in our, in our muscles and when an animal dies, that gets converted to lactic acid. And lactic acid is what helps shape the taste and texture of an animal. But it's also an antimicrobial. So if you go and look on like a jerky package, you'll see lactic or citric acid. And they use that as an antimicrobial on, our, on, on your meat to basically ward off salmonella or Listerine or one of those things. That... When there's not enough lactic acid, that means that animal was stressed prior to harvesting and it was burning all of those sugars and it wasn't able to convert anything into lactic acid. So that's why most, almost every slaughter facility we've been to, after an animal has been harvested, they dose it in lactic acid 
What's that look like? It's it's just a clear spray. It comes in a chemical bottle that has a whole bunch of real fat label on it. Um, and we luckily don't have to do that because our because our harvesting we won't say it's stress free. Those animals are are aware that we're there, but if they're stressed out, they run. If that animal is under no stress, a lot of the times we we harvest, we can sh- we can shoot an animal, and the animals beside it will go back to feeding. So we know that that animal is under very little stress, and that translate for us when we do our bacteria testing. We have almost no bacteria on our carcasses as a function of stress. Um, so that translates into food safety. That translates into taste and texture. Um, What's the difference in taste? Um, you get. Have you ever, you get like, um, you get like white meat when there's too much stress and you get a very dull taste. Like you lose a lot of the flavor that comes along with it. Um, that's how I've, I've heard it best described. So I have a really, an interesting story for you that kind of proves the concept for us. So we have one area that is a, it's 200 acres, um, and it's fenced in and it's a, area that the ranchers were trying to use in the past as an irrigated pasture and deer slip themselves in there and we have to figure out how to get them out unfortunately that's not a usda area because they're they're confined so that the they won't allow us to go in there and do it under armed inspection but the we are still able to shoot those animals without them aware that we're there but they'll kick into rigor mortis where typically rigor mortis is they get all they get really stiff from the from lack of lactic acid um they'll do it in 20 minutes because they're psychologically stressed because they know they're contained in that pen versus in the wild where they're not penned it takes almost three hours to reach rigor mortis wow so that animal is still unaware that we're like they're unaware that they're going to be harvested and but because they are psychologically stressed, they're confined within 200 acres. Now, 200 acres is a big area. They, that's uh, directly related to how quickly they hit rigor mortis and how little lactic acid they have. So you think of a cow that's lived on its pasture her whole life, and then it gets shoved in a trailer. And this is, I mean, I know our ranchers are trying to do a better job of this, but a cow that lives on a pasture, then it gets shoved in a trailer and goes to a facility that's never been in, even if it's not under physical stress, that psychological stress is affecting the taste and texture and safety of that, like the food safety of that animal. It's oh, really yeah, man. I used to hate going to places when I was a little kid, not going where I was like, Mom, where are we going? Yeah. Mom? Yeah. So where are you taking me? Are we ever going to come home now, Mom? It's amazing. Um, and those things are, I think, like accelerated in wild animals but it's amazing to see just the difference in in those two different animals and taste and texture is is completely different it's amazing so i had this thought the other day which was what is it that makes me patriotic you know there's this uh Competition now. It's like who's more American? Who's who loves this country more? I'm from Canada, so you gotta you gotta <laughs> tread lightly here. Well, I was thinking about like okay, well, when someone's traveling here, what is it that I'm really proud of about this country? I was thinking, it's our open spaces. Yeah, it's it's the natural environment. Yeah, I want to take these people to places that have been unmolested by hmm. human development. 
And you made a really interesting point earlier about how if these ranches are not profitable, it is more likely that the ranchers will just sell the property and have it be developed, have it be turned into another Honolulu. Yeah. And that's a, a whole nother conversation about why the work that you do is important. Yeah. It's, um, and a conversation why, you know, some of our ranches are really important, even if they're not getting it perfect, like even if they're not in the perfect regenerative ag cycle or, um, they, you imagine coming to Maui and it looking like Honolulu, like those open spaces are so important for our well-being, I think, to be able to see that and it's there and it's natural environment. And <laughs> one of our, one of the ranchers we work with, I came in and he was, it was year end and he was swearing and he was like, I'm like, what is going on? He's like, you know what? We never make any money off of this cattle. I'm like, well, what the, what the hell do you guys do it? He's like, don't you know, we just love to be cowboys. <laughs> like yeah. there it seems to me ranching is entirely a lifestyle choice and it operates on such thin margins that you throw in, like we talked about earlier, an extra 600 cows or deer that you can't control and go completely against your grazing program and will break your fences. And it, it just creates such a tough situation for them to survive. And it's one thing in some of our more elevated areas like where we were driving today where there's there's greener grasses and it's easier but down in these marginal areas where they're not getting a lot of rainfall and it's closer to the beach and it could be a five minute trip to that strip mall those are the most important places to maintain and those are the hardest and those are unfortunately some of the areas deer like the most so it's just so important to find a balance both for those ranchers and for those deer populations, we're running into, it's been relatively wet now for four or five years. And when it's wet, everybody seems to be happy and there's lots of feed for everybody. But just in the last four months, it's gotten dry. And the last time we were out, um, we found several cakey deer, several, several fawns that had died from lack of nutrition. So these deer are also their own worst enemy. So it's not, it's, it's for the welfare of the rancher. It's for the welfare of our watersheds, but it's also for the welfare of the deer. Like they don't know anything other than to eat and breed and do their best to survive. And when there's too many of them, like 10 years ago, we were seeing hundreds of them dead and just lying down because they were starving. There wasn't any food. So we, I remember having this conversation with something. We posted something on Instagram and we were trying to explain Instagram not being the best platform for this. We're trying to explain that harvesting them is also good for them. And we're trying to have this conversation who ended up happening to be a vegan. Like, how can you say killing them is good for them? Because balancing that population for everybody is what's most important, including them. Um, There's almost a... 15 pound difference so the animals here on Maui that are still in an upward growth curve like there's still lots of feed for the majority of the animals here on Maui versus Molokai the deer on on Molokai are almost 15 pounds smaller on average it's the same damn species because they just don't have enough feed and in the past 90 years there it appears that they're getting smaller and smaller as as I think just a function of nutrition so um, it's crazy how quickly species adapt. Yeah, it's 
It's crazy how how seemingly slow it is for people who aren't in the environment all the time. Absolutely. That's one of the big issues with communicating environmental issues, yeah. like climate change or something like that. It's like it's just too slow for the scope of one yeah. human's life to really get unless you're out there in the field, unless yeah. it's someone you're someone like you who's seeing these changes on a month to month basis. Yeah. And it's they're having to they're having to adapt and we're having to adapt along with them. So it's a, we know it's a complicated conversation. There's so much to cover, but we hope it's simple enough to understand that there are too many deer. It's an environment that didn't evolve to have them there in every sense of the word, an invasive species, but that animal has value and we're trying to find a balance that works for, for everybody and the best way to do that is to eat them right. um and that's both as a function of our hunting community have a role in that and then from a commercial standpoint being able to take out thousands of animals to find find that balance yeah so yeah and from a psychological standpoint back to my point about how important open spaces are for go. humans yeah I, I don't think that we fully value open spaces correctly yep like right now we are in the largest opioid epidemic in the history of our country. We um, have some of the highest rates of depression in the history of our country. Mm -hmm. And there's an experiment um, called Rat Park. Have you ever heard of the Rat Park experiment? Yeah. For people who don't know, you know, uh, most people have heard the story that, oh, if rats are given the choice between cocaine and food, they'll go for cocaine until they die. So the scientist uh, came along and said, like, well, you're putting them in this really shitty cage. Let's see if we change the environment, if that will change their behavior. So he put them in what's called Rat Park. It was like this rat heaven. There was like rat go-go dancers and rat movie theaters. <laughs> 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 and they went for the cocaine <laughs> once, once and never came back. Wow. Because, and I think that for humans, it is, it's open spaces. Yeah. I mean, when I think about all of the major realizations that I've had in my life, like big, you know, internal decisions, like, yeah, yeah I love that woman or like, you know what, I'm going to go for it and like go for this big career decision and you know follow my dreams. It all happens outdoors. Yeah. It's rarely in front of a screen that you have the realization. It's out on those walks. And how quickly what becomes important in life rises to the top mm -hmm. when a human is put in that correct environment. Absolutely. It's almost like, like a chiropractic adjustment or something. Like your, your body wants that adjustment to happen. Mm -hmm. And you just need to give it space yeah. to occur. Uh, it's And we are... We're so lucky to get to spend as much time as we do outside. But even I recognize, it's so interesting you say that, there's two places in Hawaii. And both of them are one of the only places that you can sit and you can see no visible light other than the stars. We work in these two places. One is, one is on the Big Island and one is Maui. And seeing the vastness of those open spaces without seeing the Waikiki or the Kihei or all of these buildings stacked on top of each other. There's a clarity of thought that comes with those places. Like we always work better than those places. Anybody we take there is in an incredible mood. Um, you can instantly recognize when those trips are done that it was a function of that place as well, which I think is, yeah, I think is amazing. It's a real metaphor what you said about light pollution, because if you look up at the stars and you can see the Milky Way, 
you get this very honest reflection of yourself mm. within the universe. But with light pollution, with society, you don't get that same honest reflection. Absolutely. You can start to think that you're bigger and I'm important and look at all the money that I make. Yeah. I'm this big, powerful person. Yeah. Because you can't see yourself within the scope of everything else that's occurring. And I think, and not, not to jump too far past this conversation, but what's really exciting within the hunting industry as a whole is they're trying to, some of our brands, like our, our Sitka Gears and our Yetis and our First Lights, they're trying to connect the value of these open spaces so that hunters are no different than a kayaker or a trail runner or somebody else that finds extraordinary value in these open places and how they connect with them. Because the more people we are able to connect with them and the more times we're able to tell that story, the more likely it is we're going to save those places because they're constantly under threat to any host of right. my, uh, it's, but that wasn't the case. We talked about 30 years ago, it, like hunting being a grip and grin. It, it's, they're now trying to tell the story of how important those places are with, with sometimes it being more important than the animal or the food and those stories are going to those stories are going to work. Right. And it's it takes a real leaders within the community, people oh, who yeah. are going to represent it well because um David Brower, the well-known environmentalist, said, uh, when we win, it's temporary. When they win, it's forever. Oh, shit. When you think about it, like there's more and more people that are growing, yep. more and more spaces that are that certain people are going to want to develop. And you look at an in, you know, some administration like the Trump administration, the amount of environmental rollbacks that have happened just in the last couple of years are tremendous. And it can happen very quickly if you get enough people in that fear mindset mm -hmm. and they're willing to take orders to have short term gains over long term benefits. And uh, you can see a, a, a lot of suffering and disaster happen very quickly. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this. Uh, recently since doing um, the Motherfucker Awards, which is all based on these sociopathic corporations, <laughs> um, and how much they rely on um, fractured communities yep. to take advantage of those spaces. Yep. You know, you look at a, uh, a spot like, um, or, or, or a company like Purdue Pharma that created Oxycontin. Um, so there's a, an author named Sam Quinones. He wrote a book called uh, Dreamland, The True Story of America's Opiate Epidemic, where he follows the whole epidemic and how it happened. He said, he, he said I don't think it would have occurred um, nearly as quickly um, or near, nearly as disastrously without the advent of Walmarts. Because huh. Walmarts are the places that all the addicts would go to get their prescription and there's no accountability at Walmart. Whereas if you have all these, uh, if you have a mom and pop store and, Oh, it seems like Jake is having a problem and That's he's coming in here again and again. And Oh, let's call Jake's father and see what's happening. You can have those interventions along the point of addiction much sooner, yeah. but you get these big box stores, you get fractured communities where there's no communication. You get neighbors that don't talk to each other mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, um, it, a well-organized, a well-constructed, diabolical, sociopathic corporation 
can move in with very little resistance against community, which is why community identity is so important. Absolutely. And I think that Hawaii has a very strong culture, a very strong identity. And I, I think that's why a lot of people really love it here. It's like you really, really know who you are and you're proud of it. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there's so many arguments to say why our, our communities are fractured, but if, again, going back to a place like Molokai, and a community that is so steadfast and addresses these issues like almost instantly. Like if there's an issue, it's not resolved over Instagram. It's you go knock on so-and-so's door and you still figure it out that way. But it's amazing is if you look at the commonality in that community, everybody has enough to eat. Like nobody is, is struggling to feed their kids. They're, still connected to these open spaces because for the vast majority of them, they're going out and either harvesting an animal in the mountain or they're going into the ocean to get those fish and then they're sharing those things. And it just, all of those small things create such strong bonds in our community. Yeah. And a Walmart pops in and you can get your food and you don't have to talk to anybody. I mean, now you've got the automatic tellers and you don't got to talk to anybody even to get out of there. Um, do you know that the new Google system for the Google phone can allow, all right, so check this out. Are you going to freak me out? Freak out. All right. So I can be like, Hey Google, will you set an appointment for me to get my haircut next Tuesday between noon and 3 PM? Sure. Google will call the hair salon on your behalf. What? The person talking to Google will think it's a real person and They'll make the appointment for you. Like, well, do you have anything open at one thirty? Uh, okay, sure, yeah, great. Please pencil Tyler in at one thirty next Tuesday. Holy shit! Talking to robots. It's and the complete opposite of that being. I could, and this has happened to me several times. I can, I can have never met a person. Me and you have talked a few times. We've met each other, you know, for the first time today, and we're hanging out. By the end of this weekend, if we hunt together all weekend and we go through what's looking like a shitstorm with the weather, <laughs> um, Hoorah. and good thing you're already laughing about it. <laughs> well, I was laughing because I'm coming on this trip with a broken arm. Yeah, I'm like, we, oh my god! I think we got that sorted. Um, out. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I'm gonna be a joke from get go. The that level of connection, right? Both to that place and going to each other for those three days it's it's the complete opposite of that phone call from google or siri or whatever like it yeah i don't know what to do like i don't know how we it's easiest approach to me i feel like if i could just get one person out for three days of the whole year i'm almost creating like an activist like oh, the yeah. level of connection they'd have just in those three days. Now, if I can get them to take their shoes off and just stand out there for a period of time and, and figure out where they are and, and what that level of connectivity feels, even if, even if they're just by themselves, I mean, you, you clear or cure our opiate crisis right there. Yeah, well, yeah. because you don't want to be numb when you feel good. Exactly. Right. And I, and I think that the advent of where Trump has brought us psychologically, whether or not you agree with his politics, but just psychologically, like what place he puts us in. Yeah. Um, 
is very fearful. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a study done by a guy named Johan Hari. Uh, he brought it up in a podcast saying that there is a correlation between um, the areas where Trump voters were highest and the opioid epidemic. No way. Yeah. Wow. There's people who are hurting. And I think that the flip side of that, not to bring us down too dark like yep. most environmentalists do, yep. is that A, I think you're right that um, you can create activists and lifelong activists mm-hmm. by bringing them out into the field because people don't make decisions based off of information, which is a big mistake that a lot of environmentalists think. They're like, well, if I give them this crazy fact, they'll change all their behavior. People change their decisions based off of identity. Hmm. Like, what kind of person am I? What is the narrative of my life? How do I see myself? And if I see myself as an outdoorsman, as a hunter, as a conservationist, I'm going to make decisions accordingly. Wow. Secondly, I think that um, what you're doing is a really good example of... um, of actually making a difference. And I don't mean to say that in a trite way because like making a difference, like what does that really mean? Um, I think that we, as we were set up to work really well socially, we were also set up to work within a certain scope. Hmm. Um, you know, like Dunbar's number, you can only keep a certain amount of people in your mind. Um, at any one point, I think it's like 200 people, right? Something like that. Yeah. I, I could be wrong on that. Don't, so many don't, phone numbers I think I used to be able to remember. Right. Yeah. But um, I think that creating change on that level too, you can be much more effective if you don't try and change the world, if you try and change your block. Yeah. Like I have a friend who does this thing called Cookies at Sunset every yeah. Tuesday night. Every Tuesday night, he gets a group of people that go down to the point right where I live and they all bake cookies and they, and they hang out, they have a couple beers. And at first it was just he and a couple friends and then more and more people came out and now it's like a thing. There's like 25, 35 people that all show up and it's super good vibes. Everyone brings baked goods and they talk. Hmm. And as a result, your neighbors aren't strangers anymore. Yep. And then when the next environmental disaster happens, you can call on your friends. You know, it's, it's be this community resilience like Purdue Farm is not going to save you when a hurricane hits. Yeah, no it's way. your it's your neighbors that are going to save you. Absolutely. And I think that um, the war is won and lost. It's like uh, what's that 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 quote that um, in uh, any given Sunday about the football? He's yeah. like he's like we're playing in a game of inches. Yeah. This is a game of inches. Yeah. And and I really believe that because I've spent enough time making uh, enough documentaries on environmental issues, talking to enough people that it it is a game of inches um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's people that uh, a Walmart is fighting against to Mm -hmm. get in. It's people that a Nestle is fighting against when they're trying to come in and, and take everyone's groundwater. It's, it's people that a city group is fighting against. Um, It's like that scene in uh, a bug's life. You ever see a bug's life? Of course. Like the evil, the grasshopper hoppers, like, He's trying to explain to all of his uh, his his evil insects like the second they he's 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 throwing all, like uh, acorns at his friend. He's like, "Did this hurt? Yeah. Did this hurt?" No, and then he <laughs> opens the whole jar and it just covers them. He's like, "Well, how about that?" And he's like, "The second the ants realize that they outnumber us a for. thousand to one, we're done for." Yeah. But I think that, um, yeah, I, I really commend you for what you're doing because you are taking it on a community level and you're doing something that you really like doing, which energizes you. Well, and I hopefully we're just 
one of those acorns. Like we're not a global solution to invasive species. We're not, you know, going to reach anywhere the capacity of solving our ocean trash issues. Like our solution is very specific to right here and just these places. And if that story helps inspire anybody else, great. But even if we can just get this part sorted out, even if we can find balance here and that food can inspire people locally to take on other issues, that's enough. Like yeah. that's, that's one acorn and, and hopefully you make a bunch of them with it. Yeah. I, I just had this thought, um, uh, producing like producing the motherfucker awards. It was all about attention to detail. It's yeah. like, it wasn't one big decision. It was a thousand little decisions. Like, okay. One after the next, after the next. Yeah. And I think that the attention to detail that you have asking yourself the questions like, okay, what needs to happen now? Mm-hmm. What needs to happen now? And not getting overwhelmed is, it's the way that you pull it off. Like it, it really happens. We were, we were talking earlier about meditation yeah. and how it allows you to respond to a situation, um, more effectively. Like yeah. it gives you another tool in your toolkit. And if you can respond to one situation after the next, after the next, ethically Mm -hmm. then you can win Mm -hmm. and i would imagine that building maui nui venison it wasn't just one decision no thousands and you know what like good thing for all of the people out there that can sit there and say oh it's easy to make an ethical decision each time but as an entrepreneur like you're faced with i mean taking on something that nobody else has done but on top of that, I'm responsible for four guys in their family. And like you're at a crossroads and margins are tight and all of a sudden you get an offer and you're like, Ooh, that's like right there. Those are our, those are our values. And I put them on the fridge because I would have to come back to that and say, Hey, this could stabilize things and, and make everything a lot easier, but that's not in the wheelhouse for us. And I'd sit down with the guys and I'd say, this is what we're faced and we'd all look at each other like, oh, shit, like the next four months are going to be like not a lot of fun. And like ethical decisions aren't easy. Like they're easy after you feel you feel <laughs> yeah. amazing. But when you got families to feed and, and it's and it's a business that's nobody's done before and shit just seems to always go wrong. Um, yeah. Having just one win at a time and having the mental fortitude to just take it one at a time and being just reminding myself the hardest part was to remind myself to step back and look at the big picture every once in a while because you get so buried in those day-to-day decisions and stuff breaking and dealing with i mean trying to create something new within the confines of the federal government you're hunting wild (laughs) animals for a living within the confines of the federal government trying to turn into a profitable business the first time we called it was like no and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to call back in a week. Like, well, we're going to work on this. Um, like, you think my girlfriend said yes the first time? Yeah, I'll be no, back. No way. Um, but, you know, it's amazing. Like, every time you get a win, every time, you, even if it's like a small win, they, they compound really quickly. And then when you get a, when you get a loss, because it happens, like you get losses all the time, there's what you just you figure out how to work around them because you've had those wins and you've had enough of the small ones and 
one of our one of the values we have in our company is is take action even if it's imperfect, like just take action. Cause we found more often than that, more often than not, even if we take action and it's not perfect and we fall flat on our face, what we've learned just is, is so important for the next time we have to take action. So we just do it as often as possible. We collect what information we can and then we just make decisions and, and sometimes we're wrong. We're for sure wrong, but we, we just try to take action as often as possible. And I sit and I watch people that like we had a guy come out with us the other day and I, and I said, Hey, we're working on this. Can you just call, um, this is the guy that does all of our, our maintenance on our truck. Can you just give him a call and tell him we need to get this fixed? Like the kid was struggling even to make that phone call. He didn't know how to just take action immediately from like a social standpoint. And I think if more people just were able to just do that and and be okay with the win or the loss, I, I think, I think that helps a lot and it's helped a lot for us because we expected a lot of losses and we got a lot of no's. Yeah. And you know, it took 10 years to figure out. You know how you teach that? Who? You give your kid a little slingshot in Alberta. <laughs> let him get out there and yeah. figure it out for himself. Yeah. We ran into a few grizzly bears along the right. way. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's it, right? You hire people not off of who they are, but who they're capable of being, oh, you, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't hire them just off the skills that they have, yeah. but the mindset that they have. And if they were taught as kids to figure it out for themselves, they're taught to solve conflicts for them, you know, and resolve it. I think that's one of the real great things about traveling is that you end up in some sticky situations Super. that you got to figure out for yourself Yeah, and how empowering that is and like how much more of yourself you grow into when you move through those situations yeah. is, is really special. The last guy I hired um, would have, you know, you pulled his resume and you would have said, oh, like you're, you're already thinking like a oh, typical millennial. And I got halfway through the conversation. I was like, this kid is great. And I was like, wait a second. Have you ever shot a gun before? <laughs> and he was like, no. I'm like, you're hired. <laughs> like, yeah, you'll like, learn. You just don't care. Like you used to you used to have to have that basic skill set and the smarts and the attitude. And now if I can just find somebody that has been through hardship and has failed and has the right attitude after all of that, I'm like, you're hired. Like I can, I can teach you how to do the rest. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, what you said earlier about like having the mental fortitude to make it through a situation we were, we were talking earlier about the power of the mind. Yeah. We talked a lot earlier. We would did have been, like, a, would have been a lot of good podcasts. Like nine podcasts. <laughs> yeah. But um, you need to be in accordance with your values to, ha- to be able to fully exercise your mind to its potential. Mm. I think that people who um, have found themselves in a job that they hate, taking orders from a boss that they don't respect, working at a company that they don't believe in... Mm-hmm. I think that it is imp- you become dull to the suffering that you're creating and it becomes impossible to become as potent as you have the potential to be. Sure. Yeah, and it's and even with that said I think the choice is still to do I mean it seems like such a basic thing but to do the best with the situation you're in even if it sucks. Um yeah. And can you be alone with yourself? Can you be alone with yourself in those moments of silence? So I came, a good example is I came, um, and again, by no means am I uh, the perfect example, but I I came back from playing professional volleyball. I got into 
the real estate industry because it was just it was there and and it made somewhat sense for me i bought and sold like a, a real estate publication and then i had nothing else like I was trying to figure out and I had my nonprofit, the Access Steering Institute, where I was just basically continually collecting information. It was at that point just an obsessive ho- like hobby. This was 12 or 15 years ago and I had to provide for my family. So I worked for a pest control company, like of all places, like Terminex. And I'm just like, this is like, this is the worst thing ever. Um, but I still went to that, that work every day deciding that I was going to do the best that I possibly could and try and create change within that, that place. And I got out of there as fast as I possibly could. <laughs> right. As soon as there was another viable option. Yeah. But sitting on the couch for that eight months was, wasn't an option. Like, and I think maybe cause I shoveled too many driveways full of snow as I was a kid. You just, you're, you're, we were bred to just work and then figure it out as you go. Yeah. Um, no. And you look, you do the best with what you got. And I, here's me, privileged white kid talking about like, can't you just get a better job? But <laughs> yeah. I think that, um, sometimes you do have a job that sucks and y- yeah. it's, and, um, there was a, a story of, I think it was Kennedy. I could be getting the president wrong. He, he went into NASA and, uh, he met a janitor and, um, this was when they were trying to, um, launch uh, to put a man on the moon and he said to the janitor he's like oh what do you do here he's like sir i'm putting a man on the moon that's awesome right yeah that's awesome he is he's part of that system he's, yeah. he's part of producing it no matter what your job is if you believe in the overall vision of it you mm-hmm. do play an integral role yeah and and man leaders people at the top they really get that yeah because they're nothing without the people down at the bottom who create the foundation oh absolutely i'm i mean I got a bunch of badasses for, for crew members and, and they've, it's, they've had to work to be there. But as soon as like we have any success, like you immediately turn around to them and just say, thank you. Like I I'm doing, it's taken five years to figure out the field work and now it's time to tell the story because we weren't comfortable doing it before. Cause we weren't really sure if we could get it done. Um, and now I get to turn around and tell these stories knowing that, you know, the time that I miss, in the field, they're out there still getting it done and a deer at a time, they're making a difference. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's amazing to have a a great crew like that, but it's not super hard to convince guys to come and hunt for a living. (laughs) We're going to pay you to come (laughs) hunt. Don't get me wrong. My guys are awesome, Yeah, but I'm going to come pay you to hunt every day. Well, uh, we've been going for a while, but what, uh, what can we expect over the next few days? Um, what, what did I sign up for, man? Well, we're, we're looking for a little bit of rain for sure. Okay. We're going to be up in, for Hawaii, some, some fairly cold climates. It'll be in the 40s at night, but we've got an incredible area to do some hunting in. We've got Shane, Mark, um, one of Mark's buddies coming in. Um, and those are always a great crew to have around. You know Mark and Shane, uh, Healy and Dorian, and... I've had absolutely no time in the water with them. I've only had time in the mountain with them. And if they're even half excited when they chase around big waves as they are slinging arrows, like they are the best guys to be around ever. Like I haven't seen anybody get out of bed that quickly. Like Shane is like hopping around in the dark, like just waiting for the sun to come up. And what's the terrain look like that we're going to be hunting in? Um, Fairly steep. You're looking at, I mean, everything in Hawaii is pretty steep. You're looking at like 25 to 45 degree slopes for most of the day um it's 
a huge mix of lava and shrub bushes uh, as a function of it's on one side of, of Haleakala, which means there's been some flows that have come down. It's going to be, we're going to just try not to have you fall. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot fall on my right arm. Cannot fall on the arm. I'm going to do some ninja rolls if I fall. Looks well, I have a sling. So I'm gonna, yeah, it does. It's broken. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's real broken. broken. It's broken. <laughs> I, I was thinking my arm is held together by metal screws and a blood clot is forming that will want that will become bone, but it's not bone yet. Well, listen. If the next time you check in with everybody, you've managed to get up there <laughs> and we put a couple of deer on the ground, that's a huge W. It's a huge W. And the freezer is going to be full for the next three months. And I can't you can, wait. You can share that with a bunch of great people back well, in Santa and, Cruz. And the the moment that I broke my arm, oh. this was the first thing that I thought of. Yeah. It was. No, am I gonna miss this trip? I can't draw my bow. Yeah, you're like, oh, it's all good. We'll just put you with a rifle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, too easy. I mean, oh my God. if you're bow hunting, you're doing it because you're asking for a level of accountability that doesn't come with a rifle. And and like I said, the rifle is a great way to get out there and enjoy yourself. I got nothing against rifle hunting. I did it for a long time, and you're gonna have a much better chance of putting an animal on the ground and bringing some meat home. And, um, yeah, that's what it's in the end. That's what it's all about. So yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Well, where can people get in touch with you and learn more about Maui Nui Venison? Um, just the website is Maui Nui Venison.com. IG is, is Maui Nui Venison. We're, we're not super active on IG. We're trying to get all of that sorted out and figure out how to tell the story the right way. But the, the website has tons of great info and I think we've got some, We've got some really cool partnerships coming up this year with some great people that um, I'm, uh, hopefully folks will hear about. And yeah. Yeah, we're... we're Jake we're, Muse. Dude. Dude. Thank you for existing. I'm <laughs> really stoked that you're around and... Uh, hopefully we're still friends in three days. Yes. Okay. So too. All right, buddy. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Silo Sapenia by Flagship. These guys listen to the podcast and they sent me some music. If you're a musician and you want your music played at the end of this podcast, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can send those voice memos that I love getting from you. If you enjoyed that episode and you want to hear more like it, check out episode number 173 titled The Future of Eating Meat with Elliot Schwartz, episode number 152 with Shane Dorian and Mark Healy, or episode number 101 with Justin Lee. Those are all hunt and meat-eating centric podcasts once again thank you so much to santa cruz medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these episodes you can go to scmedicinals.com type in the code name kyle 10 and get 10 percent off any cbd order reach out to jake muse if you enjoyed it he's on instagram i will link to his instagram as well as website for maui nui venison in the description below stay inside be a good person meditate sleep and I will see you all next week.
Forget all of the beauty within it So now I'm kind 